today is Tuesday the 2nd of August 2022 and this evening we're going to look at being frugal. This uh, topic was suggested to me by a student. Um, she noticed that frugality was becoming more mainstream as a re reaction to the um, inflation that's happening and the, the steeply rising cost of living. And uh, she sent along with the suggestion um, a link to a, a blog from, from a, um, I think some kind of financial advisor or trustee, trustee executors is the name of the, of the company. This came out in July. And um, I'm just going to read a little bit from it, just to give, get, give you a taste. Um, With the ongoing pandemic, inflation, and the looming threat of another global recession, many of us are looking for ways to cut our costs and exit the proverbial rat race. Households still growing financial pressure, leaving many to look for ways to relieve the burden. For most, that means finding a way to minimize our costs and embrace frugality. Frugality offers a measure of stability, a way of approaching our lives that prioritizes stability and our personal concept of enough over societal expectations. I think it would be fair to say that the, the vast weight of societal pressure is um, has been generally over the years um, pressure to spend and to acquire rather than to think about what is enough. Um, I think the most one of the most egregious examples of, of this was after 9/11 when George Bush encouraged people to go out and shop as a way of responding to the, the uh, massacre, something that was supposed to be good for, good for America. Uh, they go on in the article to talk about uh, examining our spending habits and realizing that um, if we spend beyond our means, nothing really can protect us. And that that um, conversely, a frugal lifestyle can provide long-term financial stability, even to those of us who earn relatively little. Then the next heading is, what does it mean to f be frugal? Frugal, frugality is not about spending as little as possible on any given day. Rather, it's about spending with intention. It means focusing on long-term spending efficiency, staying within our budget and prioritizing our savings over our spending. For many of this, this is, us, this is difficult. We feel uncomfortable, even ashamed, at the idea of not being able to buy things we want for ourselves or our kids. A frugal mindset isn't inherently one where we go without, though. Instead, it's using our money to buy something else that we want for ourselves and our kids, financial security. So this is what this 
this little blog is talking about, it goes on to identify, get, encourage people to identify their goals, and then to see what in their lives they can do without to be, to define what enough means for each of us. I don't know that really what they're talking about even really qualifies as frugality. It's more, he's more talking here about, about thrift. Uh, but I guess it's the it's the probably the, the most limited understanding we have of of what frugality is, uh, and it's it's in the service of what we might call financial prudence. Benjamin Franklin said, "The way to wealth depends on just two words: industry and frugality." So, so this this article is is really about making, it, it preserving if not making money, um, pr protecting our our wealth, and of avoiding debt, which we could say is a kind of bondage. The the Buddha saw debt as one of the um, main sources of suffering for ordinary people. A kind of, and it is a kind of bondage to be in debt. Um, so this this first category of, of frugality is just um, just scratches the surface of of the. Um, the riches to be found in frugality, and I want to explore a few of those. But just before we leave this this um, um, first stage or type of frugality, just a comment on something that one a former U.S. president said, Calvin Coolidge. Um, he said, "There is no dignity quite so impressive." and no one independence quite so important as living within your means. This, this statement struck me in a couple of different ways. Um, if we look at it from the terms of the biosphere, exactly what we humans have been doing is not really living within our means, but, but racking up this, this um, big debt to the biosphere a uh, big kind of environmental deficit um, through our over-exploitation of this, our world's riches, resources. So um, those of us in wealthy country, countries collectively, we're not debt-free. We have this karmic debt to, to the biosphere, to all the, all the beings of the planet, and it is particularly people in affluent countries who have who've racked up this debt. Um, so practicing frugality, um, which we could could say um, tailoring uh, to our needs rather than our greed, as Gandhi put it, 
is another way of practicing frugality. We could talk about um, ecological prudence, we could say. There's another point on this um, Calvin Cooler statement that, that um, talk, in talking about um, living within um, means being, being a kind of dignity, which it, I think it's fair to say that that's, that's the case, we can agree with that. But for just a moment, imagine not being able to meet, to live within our means the indignity of that. And where there are many people in this time who are on benefits or on low wages, which are actually insufficient to meet all their basic needs, housing, food, clothing, medicine. And it's really a kind of torture to um, allow this to happen, to be people who who have to make a choice about whether they pay the rent or eat or go to the doctor. Buddhism calls these four, housing, food, clothing and medicine, um, the four requisites. They're um, often in the suttas, uh, referring to the basics needed by monastics to, in order to be able to practice, to have, have s shelter, nourishment, covering of the body, and medicine when sick. And if, you, um, if you look at the, the, the four requisites in the sutras, um, frugality is, is sort of built into um, the instructions that are given to the monks. They have to be uh, understood and treated properly. And this is the, this is the, um, how a monk's attitude should be to these, these requisites. Properly considering the robe, I use it simply to ward off cold, to ward off heat, to ward off the touch of flies, mosquitoes, simply for the purpose of covering the parts of the body that cause shame. So that's the clothing part. Properly considering arms food, I use it not playfully, nor for intoxication, nor for putting on weight, nor for beautification, but simply for the survival and continuance of this body for ending its afflictions, for the support of the chaste life, thinking I will destroy old feelings of, of thirst and not create new feelings from overeating. Thus I will maintain myself, be blameless and live in comfort. And then the housing, properly considering the lodging, I use it simply to ward off cold, to ward off heat, to ward off the touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, and re reptiles, simply for protection from the inclemencies of weather and for the enjoyment of seclusion. And then last one, properly considering medicine, requisites for curing, medicinal requisites for curing the sick, 
I use them simply to ward off any pains of illness that have arisen and for the maximum freedom from disease. So, so there's a sense of just, just what is needed and, t and no more, taking no more than is necessary and appreciating what one receives. Um, that's another way we can, another um, motivation we can understand for frugality is um, it's a kind of discipline in the service here, in the example of the monks, of, in the service of non-attachment, of, of letting go to, um, to self-partiality, to self-indulgence or adornment, gluttony and so forth. Um, so becoming a, an aspect of one's, one's uh, practice discipline. Not wasting is also um, an important motivator sometimes for our frugality. Um, there's, there's a story in one of the suttas about a queen, um, Sayamavati, who um, offers Ananda 500 robes for, for the monks. And um, the husband of this queen, Queen Syamavati, got suspicious and thought there was some, some scam or something going on. So he goes and questions Ananda about this and uh, wants to know what's going to happen to these 500 robes. And Ananda replies, the garments of many of the brothers are in rags. I am going to distribute the garments among them. And then the king asks, well, what will you do with the old garments? And he says, Ananda says, we will make bed covers out of them. What will you do with the old bed covers? We will make pillowcases. What will you do with the old pillowcases? We will make floor covers out of them. What will you do with the old floor covers? We will use them for wiping cloths. What will you do with the wiping cloths? We will use them for floor mops. What will you do with the old floor mops? Your Highness, we will tear them in pieces and mix them with mud and use the mud to plaster the house walls. It's a, it's a beautiful example of, of um, no waste, no, and of no... Um, An attitude of uh, of reverence for the for the material. It's it's this this kind of frugality. Is um, to do with recognizing the deepest truth about ourselves and things, and our our kinship with things.
Some of you may be familiar with this book, um, Novice to Master, um, about um, so-called Morinaga Roshi. And, and one of the many, I've told these stories many times because they're, um, they're another example of this, concrete example. The young Soko Morinaga goes to train with, with um, or just really to live with, looking for somewhere to go. Um, the, his Roshi, um, whose name I don't remember at the, at the moment. But anyway, the first task he's given is to, is to rake the garden and uh, sweep, sweep the paths. And he, he um, recounts going at this job with great, with great um, enthusiasm. And he says, quite soon I had amassed a mountain of dead leaves. Eager to show off my diligence, I asked, them, asked him, Roshi, where should I throw away this trash? The words were barely out of, this, out of my mouth when he thundered back at me, there is no trash. No, no trash, but look, here. I tried to indicate the pile of leaves. So you don't believe me, is that it? It's only that, well, where should I throw out those leaves? That was all there was left for me to say. You don't throw them out, he roared again. What should I do then? Go to the shed and bring back an empty charcoal sack. So he goes, the young boy goes and gets, gets the sack and brings it back. And when he comes back, he finds that the Roshi has been uh, combing through the mountain of leaves and kind of sifting it so that the lighter stuff was at the top and the heavier sand and stones had fallen to the bottom. And then he stuffs the leaves into the sack and, and tamps them down as hard as he can and says, take these to the shed. We'll use them to make a fire under the bath. As I went off to the shed, I silently admitted that the sack of leaves over my shoulder was definitely not trash. I also told myself that what was left in the pile out there in the garden was clearly trash, none, nothing but trash. I got back, though, to find the Roshi squatting over the remains of the leaf pile, picking out the stones. After he had carefully picked out the last stone, he ordered, take these out and arrange them under the rain gutters. When I had set out the stones together with the gravel that was already there and filled in the spaces pummeled out by raindrops, I found not only were the holes filled, but that my work looked rather elegant. I had to allow that these stones too failed to fall into the category of trash. There was still more though, the clods of earth and scraps of moss, the last dregs. Just what would anyone possibly do with that stuff, I wondered. I saw the Roshi going about his business, gathering up these scraps and placing them piece by piece in the palm of his hand. He scanned the ground for dents and sinks. He filled them in with the clods of the earth, which he then tamped down with his feet. Not a single particle remained of the mountain of leaves. Well, he queried, do you understand a little better now? From the first, in people and in things, 
there is no such thing as trash. This was the first sermon I ever heard from Zoe Ganroshi, although it did make an impression on me. Unfortunately, I was not keen enough to realize the truth as a result of simply hearing his words. So this would, would have been just what this young Morinaga needed to hear coming as he did, full of disillusionment about himself at the, at, the, at the end of the war in Japan, to hear the Roshi say, from the first, in people and in things, there is no such thing as trash. And that realized in the way of working with the, with the garden, taking the care to, to sift through what was swept up and, and um, find a place for everything. Everything gets, gets uh, you could say, returned to, to its proper place. And to treat each other in the same way that, that, that no things or people are uh, discarded, left out. One more, one more story from, um, from Japan. Well, one, one story from Japan and we have one from China. She will look at, the, look at the Chinese, the short Chinese one first. This again, this is a Zen story um, about two young pilgrims who were traveling around in China looking for a teacher, a Zen teacher. And they'd heard that, that um, there was a master living with a few disciples in the deep forest um, at, the, at the headwaters of a, of a stream. And then one day after many weeks of travel, they were finally eagerly approaching the master's hermitage when they saw in the stream that flowed down the mountain a cabbage leaf. And they immediately turned to leave because they were disappointed. They thought that at a place where, uh, a training place, there should be uh, more care taken in, in such a case and not let, let this, this cabbage leaf probably that got loose while being washed, floating down the, the, this little stream. But then they saw the, the old master come out, sleeves flapping, 
uh, running along the stream and scooping up the stray cabbage leaf. And then the two pilgrims, having, having seen this evidence of, of real care, um, decided to uh, finish their climb up to the monastery, now sure that they had, had come to the right place to train. I think this story can can uh, be a lesson for us when we can so so carelessly discard things. And it's something we we um, try to to um, counteract in the way that we that we um, deal with f food at the centre in terms of not trying to waste. Um, and if it's something that can't be eaten, to compost it. Um, these are uh, concrete ways of, of um, acknowledging and realising for ourselves the, the, the absolute value of, of each, each thing we eat, each thing we, we have to use. And one, just one more story. Again, um, this one from from um, from Sogenji, a temple in um, Okiyama that um, some some people from the Rochester Centre have gone to to, to train under um, um, Hojo-san, Shoto Harada Roshi. And it's a story about um, one of the abbots of the of Sogenji, Yi San Zenrai Zenji, and his student Tikisui Jiboku. Now this Yi San um, Zenji came to train at um, Sogenji from far away, um, from. Fukui Prefecture in the, in the north by the Sea of Japan. And it's, he relates here that he was from a very poor village without even a river. And in this village, um, which was situated at the very end of a peninsula, and the villages were completely isolated. It was quite difficult for them to even get to the nearest town and therefore there was almost no exchange with other places. And because there was no river, the villagers would have to collect water, the um, rainwater, which came down the guttering of the houses. So they would have big uh, earthenware uh, sort of pots or tanks at the corners of the houses to collect the precious rainwater. And then that water was used for everything, to make rice, to wash the dishes, to clean the floors, um, finally to water the garden. So this, this, uh, the water would be used carefully and over and over, the same water, um, again and again used until finally it was, it was um, used for watering the plants. So this was the, the, the background of this 
Gisan Zenrai Zenji. He was very poor and desperately wanted to do Zen practice and finally was able to leave his village um, finding somebody's discarded straw sandals and being able to walk all the way to um, Okayama to practice with Sogenji. So the story is related about his um, encounter with um, Tekisui Jiboku, who um, Giboku rather, who became a later abbot of Tenryuji. So the master, Gisan Zenrai Zenji, uh, wanted to take a bath. Now this, would be, this is a Japanese bath, of course, where the um, water would be um, heated up uh, over a fire. The actual bath would be over the fire. And unfortunately, the water got overheated and it was too hot to get into. And so Gisan Zenrai called his attendant, um, Tikisui, and asked him to go and get co some cold water from the well right at the back of the temple and pour it into the bath to cool down the water. So his white disciple went and bought the water, put it in the bath, and then had to make several more trips back and forth, carrying the water until the bath was at the right temperature. Finally, it was, and Gin-san indicated this to, to Tekisui. And um, Tekisui still had a little bit of water in the bottom of his bucket, which he then uh, tipped out um, onto the stones outside the bathhouse. And seeing him do this, Gisan Zenrai yelled at him, you just threw away that little bit of water on the ground and turned over that bucket. At that moment that you did that, you were only thinking of that as just a little bit of water and were therefore carelessly throwing it away, weren't you? Why didn't you go one step further especially knowing that this is the time of year when there's never enough rain. Why didn't you put it on the garden's trees or flowers? If you had put it on the tree, it would have become the very life of that tree. If you had put it on the flowers, it would have become the very life of the flowers and lived on. Why do you begrudge such a small effort as that? With these scathing words, he severely reprimanded his disciple. Continuing, he said, in even one drop of water, no matter, no matter how tiny a drop, the water's great value doesn't change at all. If you can't understand this value of one single drop of water, no matter how hard you train, you'll never become someone who can give life to that training. And Harada says, um, Gisan Zenrai Zenji, seeing this precious water being wasted in front of his own eyes, he who has always lived on the few drops of water provided by the rain for him, 
Having come from that background, there is no doubt that water was so precious that he felt that his very life was being discarded right in front of him. If we look at it carefully, he didn't get so unreasonably angry. It was his own life energy, his very way of living being discarded in front of him. And, and he probably wasn't angry, he was probably just um, speaking in this strong way in order to get his message across. The monk received his teacher's admonition. For him this was almost was most, a most moving lesson which struck him deeply and echoed within. He changed his name to Tikisui, which means one drop of water, and went to, on to complete his training. So this, this um, seeing, seeing the, the, um, the absolute value of everything that we, we touch, everything that we handle, everything that gives us life, Edmund Burke said, frugality is founded on the basis that all riches have limits. And that's one way of um, understanding the Zen attitude to things. But it does not encompass um, all, of, all of that is that this frugality means. It's a, you could say it's, one, it's a recognition of the limits of things um, and also of the, of the labor of countless beings as we say in the meal chart. But also more than that, it's being able to really recognize the unique life that each and everything in the universe has. And, and affirming this is to participate in that life ourselves. We actually um, have a, a choice about how we, how we handle Dharma treasures, all that we receive. We can, we can nurture it and, and therefore express our gratitude, or we can ignore it. So to, to be frugal can be an expression of our kinship with all things, both animate and inanimate. So in a, in a somewhat random fashion, we've explored um, all these different kinds of motives that can be behind our frugality. It can be from financial prudence, living within our means, freedom from debt, which are not to be rejected. These, these things uh, are important. But going beyond, beyond this kind of prudence, um, not wasting what we receive. Recognizing that we, we rack up we rack up karmic debts if we um, if we are not mindful of of 
what we receive and what, how we use it. To cherish all life. So our frugality can be this, this recognition of the absolute value of things. Or it can be, as we saw in the Pali text, um, an aspect of our spiritual discipline of um, uh, breaking our habits of, of uh, self-cherishing, self-partiality. It can also be um, a way of paring things down in order to get more, more uh, intimate with the essence of things. Through, through freeing ourselves from our wants, we'll get more clarity about our needs and more clarity about what, what remains when we take it, when we, when we pare things down. And so with this uh, talk, I'd like to finish up by looking at um, Henry David Thoreau, who was, was um, a proponent of um, simple living. He, he went into a kind of, of semi-retreat. It um, wasn't very far from, from people. He did have visitors, but lived a kind of a, of a hermit life at um, Walden Pond, which is now famous as a, as a result of, of his having stayed there. And uh, it really, um, in many ways, is, is in harmony with the Zen understanding of simplicity and poverty. He says, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. To truly live, which, which also um, these, these stories about the frugality of um, Zen, the Zen Chan and Zen folks is pointing to the same thing. To, 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 to live and, and let live. Thoreau also, also said, in proportion as he simplifies his life, the laws of the universe will appear less complex, and solitude will not be solitude, nor poverty, poverty, nor weakness, weakness. Find in, in Zen this, this poem is by Xiang Yan Zhixian. Last year's poverty was not real poverty. This year's poverty is finally genuine poverty. In last year's poverty, 
there was still ground where I could plant my hoe. In this year's poverty, not even the hoe remains. So we, it sort of brings us back full circle to come back to Thoreau. You could say um, in his, his, his frugality there was uh, an effort to um, find spiritual wealth and also freedom from wants and desires. This is Zen saying, a plain bowl turned from wood of a mountain tree has no lacquer that can peel off. Nothing, nothing added, nothing extra. The bowl would be um, wood all the way through, nothing, um, no gilding of it. Or Kazan, who is a third generation descendant of Master Dogen. Taste and taste though you may, there is something delicious where there is nothing delicious. Last one from from uh, Nicholas de Chamfort. Nature never said to me, "Do not be poor." Still less did she say, "Be rich." Her cry was always, "Be independent." This is something that that uh, frugality can can offer us in our not not relying on. Um, not getting getting attached to our preferences, truly discovering what it what it means to to uh, live live simply, and and to therefore discover that the, the wealth that is in front of us all the time. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure.